Hey everybody, my name is Chris Hartstrom and this is the Talking Book Podcast. The Talking Book is a non-profit audiobook publisher of independent literature from Asheville, North Carolina. We're a 501c3. We depend on generous donations from people like you. Go to patreon.com slash talking book if you want to get involved or just go to our website, thetalkingbook.com. O-R-G, that's the talkingbook.org. Check out our audiobooks, check out these writers, come to Asheville, hang out with us, record your book, the talkingbook.org. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, it's Chris from the Talking Book Podcast. Uh, today we have a new reading by a writer and an artist named Brad Phillips. Um, Brad, he is a contemporary Canadian artist, and he's also a writer. Um, his work uh, has been about subjects like addiction and uh, obscure sexuality, mental illness. Um, and his first book um, was Essays and Fictions. It was published this year by Tyrant Books. And right now, we're recording that with somebody to be an audiobook. And, uh, but today, uh, Brad Phillips has, uh, a couple of pieces from a new book he's working on. Um, and I don't know lots about it. I don't know the name of the book, but these, uh, couple short stories or chapters from it are, um, uh, they're, they're awesome and they're weird as hell and they're unsettling a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, but, but listen to it. I think you're going to like it. But, uh, anyway, here's a, a reading, um, from new work from Brad Phillips, the artist Brad Phillips. Here's some new work by Brad Phillips. Hi, my name is Brad Phillips. Uh, this is an, these are excerpts, I'm ad-libbing this. These are excerpts from a book that will be published by Tyrant Books. Um, a novel, the title of this novel is The True Story of John Lang and the Hollywood ESP Cult. Um, any, any bloopers or gaffes or uh, slip-ups in my reading should be attributed to um, indigestion and not nerves. Please. Right now, this book that I'm writing is about a group of remote viewers who travel back in time in an attempt to steal paintings stolen by Dr. Josef Mengele while he lives in Argentina. There's also a section about how the day when I lost my virginity in 1991, when I was walking home from my girlfriend's house at around one in the morning, um, there were, on a side street, there was a, a Sikh temple that was on fire, like a raging fire. And for some reason, there were no sirens and no one was standing around looking and I kind of had my own private fire and it could have been any structure. It didn't matter that it was a religious temple. 
but ever since there's been some inscrutable connection in my mind between the day I lost my virginity and the image of seeing a giant structure eradicated by fire. Okay. The Secret History of the History Channel. I was shocked years ago when I learned that war criminal par excellence, Dr. Yosef Mengele, was alive in my lifetime. One day shy of my 14th birthday in 1979, Mengele died swimming while visiting friends in the Brazilian coastal resort town of Bertioga. Died peacefully. His underwater stroke, no swimming technique, just the same mundane brain mishap that felled my grandmother. The doctor had friends, most likely very old ones, who'd made that initial journey overseas after the war. Mengele had seen the rise and fall of the beatniks and the hippies, both of whom would have repulsed him. Men with long hair, Altamont, Bra Burnings, Marvin Gaye. He'd have seen the race riots and unrest of 1970s America, the dominance of bands like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. He'd have witnessed the Manson family, JFK, Deep Throat, Patty Hearst, Watergate and Andy Warhol, enjoyed the clever lyrics of Carly Simon's You're So Vain, experienced that sad moment when the Velvet Underground made rock music pretentious, plus disco in Vietnam. Half in the bag, Mengele slow dancing to the Commodores, easy like Sunday morning, in his home in Argentina or Brazil or Bolivia, he could be seen watching television from his deck facing the lake bourbon in one hand, Cuban cigar in the other, Archie Bunker and the Jeffersons, the price is right. Let's make a deal. Was he in the minority like me, preferring Roger Moore over Sean Connery as James Bond? Marathon Man would likely have been his favorite movie, recognizing himself in the role of the dental torturer, himself an escaped Nazi. I'm in the motion picture, he's jokingly tell his aloof gardener Diego. Is it safe? Is it safe? They stole my line, he'd say to no one in particular. Some nights struck by melancholy, Mengele would unlock the door to his study. Inside, warming a tumbler of Armagnac in his hand while slouched in a recliner, he'd gaze with confused pride at his Cezanne, or his Monet, or his Pizarro, or his Van Gogh, or his other Van Gogh. He knew of the painting's immense value and what lengths had been taken to get them from Europe into the jungle. They weren't intended as decor, they were simple emergency currency. Mengele preferred Flemish Renaissance painting. Animal and vegetable decomposition rendered with stunning realism. Abstract expressionism and pop art he viewed as American nonsense. In his study, he resented feeling intimidated by European painting he knew was important, but couldn't grasp the artistic merit of. He instead found his satisfaction in knowing their value and more so from knowing from where they'd come. Recognizing he sometimes dealt with insecurity, Mengele briefly tried psychoanalysis, something he learned was fashionable while watching Woody Allen movies. Mengele's therapist would cry uncontrollably during most sessions, and after less than two months, the doctor fired his doctor. Mengele kept two boxes of specimens and the records of his Auschwitz experiments while preparing to decamp from Europe. He secreted them in the home of his paramour in Czechoslovakia for a while, then needing his, quote, research, unquote, desperately, risk going to Russia, where some Adriana or Yolanka had tanked them. He wanted those records. Who knows where they are today? 
especially those photos of the zoo, the repurposed horse staple Mengele used for experimenting, experimenting on over 3,000 sets of twins. Actually, they could be somewhere inside the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia, or maybe with the Office for Public Safety, safety one of which is located in Los Fresnos, Texas. Maybe inside a mountain or at the Pentagon. Maybe in the dusty, unused safe of a Marine Admiral's grandson on the outskirts of Santa Fe. On certain television shows, they say that certain killers take trophies. Dr. Mengele worked as a doctor in Argentina. An actual doctor. Yes, I have pink eye. I'm going to see Dr. Mengele. He'd feel so safe at home. The sounds of the dating game playing while Mengele rocked in his chair, lazily flipping through those records in his home in Olivos, close to Buenos Aires, like some sentimental old man lost in photos of his time as a professional boxer. And the specimens, hearts grafted to the outsides of bodies, things so depraved words can't assist in describing without also insulting. In 1956, Mengele used a West German passport procured through the embassy in Argentina and under his own name to go on a ski trip reunion with his son Rolf in Switzerland. He also fit in a week-long visit to his hometown of Gunsberg, undoubtedly drinking ale with old pals, the tender affections of matronly women, glad to see him home, glad to see him home, praising how kind he was to his mother, if only for that week. He then flew back to Argentina to deal with one of his many business investments, I think a pharmaceutical company, he wore fine linen suits and had a neighborly way. He owned many homes. He'd watch your dog if you had to go out of town. Apparently, although he tried, Mengele had a poor sense of humor and told jokes awkwardly. It was that he'd keep trying, though, sometimes repeating the joke as if nobody had gotten or heard it the first time. Inevitable discomfort in social situations. The website TakeMeBackTo.com, which provides interesting information about interesting events that happens on days from the past, doesn't mention how, on February 17, 1979, Dr. Josef Mengele, the world's most barbaric and successful war criminal, died peacefully in Sao Paulo, Brazil, surrounded, as is said, by family and friends. It does mention how that week's most popular song was Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart, I remember my mother playing it loudly while she vacuumed. As unlikely as it sounds, and sounding someone like a skinhead band name, one day in mid-February 1979, those close to the doctor surrounded a grave, and there were literally flowers for Dr. Mengele. You are lost, and me die. Be careful. Three speeding motorcycles with loud engines, tearing through a concrete structure, Sounds like what horror looks like. Gabe was ahead of Jamie and me, who weren't far behind him. I did take note of the fact I'd suddenly become expert at advanced defensive motorcycle riding, and that Jamie was riding like she did it for money. Neither of us had been on motorcycles. There was space on each floor for us three to spread out. Gabe regarded us as stupid children when we saw we hadn't split. The three of us basically drove in semicircles up and down the two top floors. Then I saw the Bentley come charging in like a tiger from the reeds. I knew those cars were expensive because they looked, light, looked nice. I should have remembered that fast is expensive as well. Jamie and I were the closest to the front of the Bentley once it made a full left onto the first floor. The handsome man, now in white driving gloves, headed straight for me. Jamie raced squealingly. I got myself into a corner handsome man couldn't get to. 
Having failed at staring him down, I drove straight towards him, then made a tight left to follow Jamie up the ramp. Behind us, it was quiet. We heard Gabe driving slowly above us. We'd stopped driving. Nobody was driving. Just engines. It was the wrong kind of quiet. Murder quiet. Then we heard the gas of the Bentley, a screeching fast turn, and the sound of Gabe gunning it to drive downstairs again. The handsome man and Bentley driver had reversed, spun around, and was speeding towards the turn on the first floor. We did not move. Gabe appeared, thumping us up and gunning past us. Suddenly, the glistening chrome of the Bentley's bumper appeared. As going as fast as he could, Gabe smashed directly into the Bentley with his front tire. The speed of the collision, instead of rocketing through the air, Gabe was shot into, then lodged inside the passenger side window, his head partly decapitated and visibly dangling. I threw up on myself, and then Jamie threw up on the ground. By way of ricochet, she partly threw up on me as well. This all happened in less than five seconds. We stared at each other with terror in our eyes, which is reasonable. We were each still sitting on running motorcycles. Horrible sounds were coming from the Bentley, an aquatically fiberglass sound that imposed itself on the acoustics of the otherwise silent garage. It was an awful sound which spited nature. Suddenly the horn went off in the Bentley. It went off like a dozen movies when a person is shot at close range, causing their head to land on the steering wheel. One single, blaring, continuous honk, again made sinister by contrasting silence. This honk will usually signal the end of a dramatic scene in film or on television. I composed myself and saw that the handsome man's head landed on the steering wheel, and from an injury sincerely sustained in a car crash, which contributed to the cinematic quality of what was happening. Jamie and I looked at each other inside. He was at least unconscious and hopefully dead. I retched a little when I looked at Jamie, and then she threw up a second time, soiling my pant leg. We saw that the driver's side door was wedged against the concrete wall, so that Gabe's reorganized body would prevent the driver from leaving by the passenger side. We walked our Kawasaki's closer and saw that the head on the steering wheel was not immobile. It was searching for purpose, moving if only as a baby moves its head. Trying not to look at Gabe was challenging. I'd never believed how long they say our intestines are, but the coiled length on spooling from Gabe's stomach over the hood of the Bentley convinced me that they're as long as they say. I guess we both got PTSD right then, when we saw our friends' insides on the outside. I threw up again on my shoe this time. Jamie started to cry, finally relieved of her nausea. I'd thrown up on myself twice and been thrown up on twice by ricochet. I've learned from television and movies that it's preferable to be shot by an expensive gun because you die before you hear the sound of the gunshot itself. Okay, there you have it. There's some new writing by Brad Phillips, the artist and the writer, Brad Phillips. If you want to follow him on Instagram, go to uh, Instagram and follow Brad underscore Phillips. Uh, he has a very funny account, very talented person. I like talking to Brad Phillips. Uh, we talk, we've never met in real life, but we talk um, via email and uh and uh, other messaging services online. And he's really funny, very nice down to earth person and a uh, very smart person. And um, yeah, hell of a guy, hell of an artist, hell of a writer. Go check him out. If you want to get his book, Essays and Fictions, which you should because it's badass, go to New York Tyrant or go to store.nytyrant.com. 
um, and get that book, Essays and Fictions. And uh, yeah, the talking book, we're uh, going to release the audiobook of that soon. It's being recorded as we speak. It's taken a while, but it's getting there. It's almost done. My name is uh, Chris Hartram, and I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. If you want to get our audiobooks or you want to um, send us some new writing from a new book or whatever to put on this podcast, put on the website, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. Check out our books. We're a nonprofit audiobook publisher of Indie Lit. My name's Chris. Thanks for listening. Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy Chasing sister squares I was lit before I knew that you were there Like an angel who has forsaken certainty Sleeping in the square I was lit The storm was passing over, and the wind.